Today, we are uh, back working on uh, Love's Diagnostic as we continue this series on unity, reminding ourselves that, uh, that love practiced in the congregation is the key to unity. Uh, unity isn't just uh, you know, sort of mental agreement or uh, coming to have the same use. It's, it's a harmony that plays out in love. The difficulty is that, that love is a, a kind of a slippery term. And we can easily assume as Christians that, you know, Jesus told us to love and we're disciples of Jesus. So, of course, we, we love one another. And uh, Paul's not uh, quite ready to let us slip by that easily. And so in the middle of this extraordinary chapter uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, he takes a number of verses and lays out very specific behaviors that mark the people who love. And we've been looking at that. Uh, so today we're going to go back to it. And we're going to talk about the behaviors of love, part three, and specifically look at verse five of this chapter. But let's read the, uh, the beginning down through verse seven. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And now here's the diagnostic. It starts out with positive, and then it goes to negative, things that love does not do, and ends up uh, back on the positive side. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes always perseveres. So this morning, we're going to just focus on verse 5. There are four things that Paul tells us love does not do, and we want to give our thought to them. See, the danger is these verses are so well known that we can run by them quickly. So the only way to get the benefit out of these verses is to slow down and spend a little time meditating on each one. So we'll try to do that. So the first quality, verse 5, love does not dishonor others. Or let's render it this way. It does not act inappropriately or rudely. That's, uh, 
a broad range, isn't it? Love doesn't act inappropriately, doesn't act rudely. <clears throat> the, uh, the word that Paul uses here is not used very frequently. He's the main person who uses this word group in the New Testament. Uh, for example, he uses it in chapter 7 of this same book. And he uses it in a context that suggests uh, uh, some sort of question related to sexuality. Uh, not entirely clear what's going on in, verse, in chapter 7. But, uh, but certainly the word incorporates some of that. So as we think about this, we'd have to say, well then love certainly doesn't engage in actions or in language that would be uh, sexually inappropriate, sexually suggestive, uh, off-color stories, jokes, that kind of thing. Right? Love doesn't do that. But as the NIV translation here, love does not dishonor others, as that suggests, it's a broader range than just sexual kinds of issues. It's what? It, it's anything that would cause shame or unnecessary discomfort to people. Rudeness certainly is included there. And, and we live in what seems to me to be an increasingly rude culture. And so Christians easily imbibe that, don't we? Yes. Uh, have you been uh, at the other end of this lady's communication? It doesn't take very much. Uh, sometimes it only takes beginning to back out of a parking space and someone is ripping through and uh, they're offended that they might even have to tap their brakes and you hear about it so uh, so it's very much in our culture or how about this you're on a blog site uh, even a christian blog and you make a comment, or you read somebody else's comment, and then you see the response that comes, uh, sometimes totally out of proportion. And you've got to think that, that a lot of the people who are making the comments would never make a comment like that in person. I mean, some of them would. But a lot of them wouldn't. And again, it's another cultural manifestation. Love does not dishonor others. It doesn't act rudely. So when you write that email, especially if, if you write it and you sense that your heart is beating a little bit faster than normal, and you're searching for some power words, to give it a little bit more strength? Well, you know, you might want to say, 
I'm not going to press send until I reread what I wrote. And until I ask myself, would I like to receive that note? Because love does not act inappropriately or rudely. Or with this, let's say it this way, love does not embarrass other people. It doesn't shame them. Now, our culture is a shame culture, as are many other cultures in the world. Uh, a lot of moderns don't believe in guilt as an objective reality. But for sure, they believe in shame. And it, it is a strong shame culture where we seek to embarrass others for a variety of reasons. Sometimes I think just because we can. Or because it makes us feel somehow stronger or better if we can embarrass others. We've all had this experience. Think about it. You who are, well, you can be young or you can be old like me. Think back to those places in your life where you were shamed. Maybe it was a parent who shamed you. Maybe it was people at school. Maybe it was a teacher. Somebody you worked with. You've had those experiences, right? I have experiences of being shamed that are over 60 years old. And I can remember those occasions in living color. Right? They're, they're burned deeply in my consciousness. I know when and how and who. That's, that's the tremendous power that that kind of behavior has. Paul says love doesn't do that. While we're at it, let's, let's think about sarcasm. Right? This is one way we embarrass people, but we do it obliquely in such a way that uh, sometimes I think we want deniability. Oh, I didn't mean that. You're offended. I'm sorry. I but sarcastic people do mean it. They're, they're sending a message. A message that says, you don't measure up. You're an idiot. That was a ridiculous thing to do. Cutting remarks. Uh, sarcasm quickly becomes the death of any healthy relationship. I've told some of you before, maybe I've told all, all of you, see it's, I'm getting forgetful. 
but uh, my best friend in high school, who also went to college with me, we roomed together. We early on developed this pattern of, of sarcastic banter. You know, sort of the one-upsmanship. Zing, gotcha. Zing, no you didn't. Hey, you know, it was the way we did it. And uh, in later college, I came within a hair's breadth of losing that friendship forever. because I didn't know when to stop. And in effect, my friend said, I've had enough of this. Well, it, by God's grace, it was recoverable. <clears throat> He's still one of my best friends today. You know what? I never risk humor at his expense. I never do it, period, full stop. Because I know what almost happened. I, I think sarcasm as this kind of veiled critique and criticism, I think it's the death of lots of friendships, lots of marriages. A uh, friend that I grew up with as a teenager, half a dozen of us guys ran around together, uh, lost his marriage after a period of time. And part of it was, he was always sarcastic. And by the time he figured out what was happening, it was too late. Love does not embarrass others. And parents, don't think that good parenting is critiquing your kids with sarcastic comments. It is not. If there's an issue, speak to it directly lovingly, but don't use sarcasm. See, part of the problem with sarcasm is that it's cutting remarks, and the cutting remarks are like playing with a razor blade. The problem with a razor blade is it's too sharp. And so you can, you know, I could be shaving in the morning if I'm not careful. I've cut deeper than I want to. Sarcasm's like that. It's just... The, the only place I would use it would be with really good friends, really good friends, and then in small doses. So Doug, I'll still be sarcastic with you sometimes. <laughs> and you with me. Love does not dis, uh, embarrass others. Uh, finally, think about this. Love does not undermine or sabotage others. That's inappropriate. That's, that's, well, it's rude frequently, but, but it's more fundamentally. It dishonors other people as creation of God. As people that God wants to work through. As, as people that God honors and undermining or sabotaging what they're doing uh, it's not compatible with love. All right, so let's go on to the second one. Love is not self-seeking. 
Literally, love does not seek its own things. That's what Paul says. Martin Luther says that every sinner has a self-curvature. That is, we always have this tendency to turn back on ourselves, to seek those things that appear to be good for us. What kinds of things? Well, how about our own comfort? Love doesn't seek its own comforts. Think about a mom with an infant child. At 3 o'clock in the morning, the kid says, I'm hungry. What does mom do? Well, she probably first tries to roll over. Kid's persistent. What does she do? She sacrifices her own comfort for the sake of the child. And good thing, right? Otherwise, we'd all be dead. Good thing that mothers, by and large, do that. They do not seek their own things, their own comfort. <clears throat> Love doesn't seek its own preferences. What kind of preferences? Music? Times? Well, I can go on and on on that, can't you? Remember, this, this is written to a church, to a congregation that is struggling to actually practice unity. Paul says, uh, we can talk theoretically about unity and the one body with all different parts, but to make it work, you've got to have this overarching element of love and love doesn't seek its own things. It seeks something bigger, grander. It's, it gives up its preferences. It gives up its comforts. It gives up its privileges. It does not seek its own. I thought... Uh, I thought the Hayes were going to preach my sermon for me this morning. That was great. What does Paul say in Philippians 2? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why should we do that? Well, because we're trying to be like Jesus. And... To live that way, not to seek our own, means that we have to become disciples of Jesus and we have to cultivate the mind of Christ. We need to learn to think the way Jesus thought. And that's what Paul is talking about. Because Philippians is also about this question of unity. It's just, it's woven over and over again through the New Testament. So having said, you know, don't just look at your own interests, but the interests of others, then Paul immediately goes in verse 5 to say, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that introduces what scholars call the Christ hymn, 
where Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not see equality with God as the thing to be grasped, but rather he humbled himself and he took upon himself the form of a servant. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So, so I need to learn to cultivate the mind of Christ when I'm uncomfortable, when I'm tired and somebody wants something, I have to ask myself, how important is my comfort? What's the mind of Christ here? We've said before that the goal of Christian life is to learn to live my life the way Jesus would live it if he were me. That's, that's love. Love is not self-seeking. Third point in verse 5. Love is not easily angered. All right, so let's, let's first clear the ground because this is always, you know, the question that comes up. <clears throat> is there such a thing as justifiable anger or righteous anger? And the answer is yes. There is justifiable anger. Scripture says that God is angered with the wicked every day. And of course, as we read the Gospels, we find out that Jesus got angry. Maybe the most obvious incident of that is the, uh, the cleansing of the temple, where he makes a whip and overturns the tables and drives people out because he's incensed by the fact that they have turned God's house of prayer for all nations into a money-making scheme. And so he is justifiably angry. All right, so we clear that off. But now let's say, virtually all the anger that you and I indulge in is not justified. Right? There is such, but the vast majority of what we get angry over is not justifiable anger. I think that's why Jesus, as he does at different times, will make these blanket statements to reinforce it. So, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. I say to you, don't get angry. Whoa, Jesus, but what about justifiable anger? And what about what you did in the temple? Don't get angry. Let's, let's start there. Let's not worry about the exceptions. Don't get angry. And, and his little brother James does the same thing. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If you're getting angry, if you're exploding and you say to yourself, there's a reason I'm doing this, well, stop a minute tell yourself, the reason probably isn't good. It's 
probably more an attempt to gain power, to manipulate other people, etc., etc. None of which is good. Love doesn't do that. Love is not easily angered. Let's recognize again that I think this is a, a cultural problem. Because the rude society is also the angry society. And, and so some people, uh, for example, my, my friend Paul Miller talks about be, people being touchy. I th I th that's a helpful term, touchiness. And by that he means anger on hair trigger. You know what that is, right? That's a landmine. Partially uncovered. Landmines are used, I guess defensively primarily, to guard a perimeter. You plant the mine under the soil so it can't be seen, and the enemy steps on the trigger and that sets the mine, and as soon as they take their foot away, the thing explodes. The estimate is that there are uh, about 60 to 70 million mines currently hidden and active in the world. Uh, what happens then, of course, is, uh, you know, these warring countries, say, Afghanistan or, or some of the African countries where they've had civil war for a long period of time, they've been planting these mines all over the place. Well, then the hostilities cease, at least for a time, the armies move away, civilians move back in. What happens? They don't know where the mines are and people get blown up. Uh, last year, the uh, one data piece I saw was that Seven, over 7,000 civilians lost their lives last year due to hidden mines. So it's a, it's a major social problem. But maybe no more of a problem than touchiness, anger on hair trigger. If you lived in an area where mines were hidden, you would be pretty cautious, huh? And, and that's what happens in relationships, church, family, marriage, whatever, where, where anger is on hair trigger, where people are touching because you walk gingerly not knowing when you might step on the release and get blown up. That's why love is incompatible. It's incompatible. Do you hear that? It's incompatible with being easily angered. People are not going to draw close, which is what love does. It draws them close. People are not going to draw close if they're about ready to get a, a leg blown off and they don't even know when it's going to happen.
our last one. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Now this, I think, is an accounting image. You have business, you gotta keep records. Among other things, well, you gotta know who you owe money to, but you need to know who owes you money so that you can collect it. That means you've gotta remember the debts. Remember who owes you, and then you've got to figure out a way to get them to pay. Maybe you just send them a notice. Uh, if you get severe, maybe you have to hire a collector to go get them to pay. But a debt involves a need to make payment. Love doesn't keep a record which says, you owe me. Now see, we feel that because we have this sense, and it comes from the Bible, actually, that, that sin against a person creates a debt. That's, that's true even in our relationship with God. Sin is failure to pay a debt. What's the debt? Well, it's the debt to honor and love and serve God. That's our obligation as created beings. And we've all of us failed to honor the debt, except for Jesus. So we, we owe God. And the question is, how do we pay? Well, what Paul says is that love keeps no record of wrongs. And the great thing is that, that that's true even of God. God's love does not keep the record of our wrongs. He doesn't remember our debts. And we're encouraged to live into God's forgiveness. Hebrews 8.12, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And that's a quotation, right? That's a quotation from the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, where Jeremiah says God is one day, one day going to set up a new covenant. And one of the marks of the new covenant is that sin will be dealt with permanently. God will no longer remember our debts. It's in that confidence that God will act that way that Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father, forgive us our debts. Not your mortgage. It's the debt of sin. Forgive us for our sins. as we forgive others. And Paul gets that. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't remember others' debt. It doesn't make them pay. Why? Because we're people who have learned to live in God's forgiveness. God does not make us pay because he has given us his son. 
who laid down his life for us and who paid the debt. That's the old song, right? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's what God has done. And so Paul says, love doesn't remember a debt. Now, let me move something uh, that I think is, is a little bit silly because I think it's impossible. <clears throat> Not remembering a debt, does that mean, as we sometimes say, forgive and forget? Uh, no. I, I think that's metaphorical language. I don't think God forgets. Literally, I don't think he forgets. He's the all-knowing God. He doesn't, he doesn't, when we trust in Jesus, forgive our sins and say, uh, now, uh, what was your background? What kind of life did you lead? I, I can't remember anymore. Not remembering means something else, doesn't it? Remembering here means God doesn't actively dwell on the reality of the fact that we lived as rebels against him, as debtors. He doesn't dwell on that. He promises that through Christ and our faith in him, our debt has been paid. And so we are forgiven. He doesn't remember our sins against us anymore. And I, that's what we're called to do. So somebody has offended you? I'm sure. <laughs> Maybe me? Love doesn't remember that. Of course you knew it happened. But... But it doesn't mean that we have to try to make ourselves guilty because we still remember that those things happen. But it means that we don't dwell on those. That our relationship with the other person is not determined by that history. And therefore, I don't have to make you pay. And you don't have to make me pay. Well, say, how, how can I do that? Oh, all kinds of ways we can do that. We can, uh, we can gossip about the other person to somebody else. Say, you know what they did? You know what they're like? Or we can, uh, how about this? The person who has uh, offended you and has this debt that they don't know how to repay. Maybe they don't even know that they have the debt. But you see them coming toward you and you turn away. And, I mean, you kind of hope that they're aware of what they've done so that they can feel that cold shoulder. But even if they don't, I mean, you know, you're, you're still, in some way or another, you're going to make them pay for the relationship, for, for the debt. 
Paul says love doesn't keep those kinds of records. It doesn't function that way. Well, I don't know about you, but I had a challenging week thinking about this thing. And uh, hopefully we all feel challenged, but at the same time we feel encouraged because these are very concrete, specific things that we can do to promote the unity of our body, to look to God, to look to Jesus hanging on the cross and say, all right, there is the model. I need to cultivate the mind of Christ toward my brothers and sisters. Let's uh, have our musicians come up and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for the deep, powerful practicality of your word. Truly, your word is the sharp, two-edged sword that that discerns who we are and penetrates to the dividing of soul of, of uh, heart and soul and spirit, and joints and marrow. But thank you as well, God, not only for uh, the penetration of your word, but the hopefulness of it. And the, the power of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will you help us as a congregation, as individuals, as families to cultivate his mentality, the mind of Jesus? Because we pray in his name. Amen.